As always, it's a distinct privilege for me to be with you this morning. Before we get started, let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our King, we come to you always and only through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have more abundant, glorious riches than we could ever imagine. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not leave us as orphans in this world, but you sent the Holy Comforter, your Holy Spirit, and promised that he would guide us in truth. And you've been keeping that promise for 2,000 years, and we pray that you would keep it again this morning, that your Spirit would take the words of Scripture and would seal them and burn them into our hearts. It's not enough to know more about a Bible verse, Lord. We need to see you. We need to be changed. We ask that you would accomplish this in your holy name. Amen. Some of you this morning here are Eeyore's. You know who Eeyore is? From Winnie the Pooh, the donkey. No matter how happy everyone is, Eeyore is sullen and dour and negative. Glass is always half empty for Eeyore, right? Some of you are Eeyore's. And I know an Eeyore when I see an Eeyore, and I know an Eeyore particularly when I hear an Eeyore. You want to know how I know? Because I am an Eeyore. And many of you don't know this about me, but if you've ever spent day in and day out any consistent amount of time with me, then you would see that that's really me. And so you could go and ask my parents, you could ask my brothers, you could ask my sister, you could ask my wife and my kids, and if they were honest and you said, is Justin really an Eeyore? They would say, yes. Yeah, that's him. He can find something wrong with a good time. And he's always had this gift. Well, the funny thing is, The funny thing in all this is I married the human personification of Tigger. (laughs) And if you know my wife, you know that that is not an exaggeration. Bouncy, 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 fun, 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 and never-ending energy. Rebecca has the energy of like a three-year-old who just ate a whole box of candy bars. And she's like this all the time, always going, always doing. She uses her powers for good. But, man, she's a busy lady. So Eeyore and Tigger got together. It makes for some interesting conversations around my house. But the Lord blessed me with her. I needed her. I needed a Tigger. Well, whether you're an Eeyore or a Tigger this morning, wherever you come out on the Winnie the Pooh spectrum of personality traits. I think that the Lord has something for all of us in the text that's before us this morning. 
And especially if you're, if you're an Eeyore like me, watch out. This one will get you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The first thing we need to recognize here is that this is not a request and it's not a piece of advice. This is a command. In every sense of the word, this is an imperative of Holy Scripture. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and by extension, because this is an inspired document, he wrote to us and he commands the church Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's not like God is coming to us and saying, well, I know that the Christian life is hard and I know that following Jesus can be difficult and I know you have struggles and I know that there's this whole list of Christian stuff that you need to do. But if you could possibly muster the energy, if you could possibly find the time, would you please... Try to delight yourself in me. God doesn't say that. He comes to us and he commands and he has the the authority to command. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes. And this rejoicing has been a major theme in the book of Philippians. Paul has already said three times in this short letter that he's rejoicing. And if you count these two times in verse 4, he's told the church four times, commanded them, rejoice, take your delight in God. And according to the book of Philippians, if you've read this book, if you believe in Christ and you know Him and you trust Him and He's made you part of His body, the church, then you have much to rejoice in. Amen? I mean, you go through the book of Philippians and the doctrines of grace, though it's only four short chapters, are just monumental. Let me just remind you of a few of them. We know from the book of Philippians that the work that God started in us when we came to Christ, He's going to finish it. It's not all up to us. What God starts, He finishes. And we're promised He will finish it. From the book of Philippians, we know that Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection, has defeated, even taunted and mocked, our worst enemy, death. Christ has defeated death for us. Paul said earlier in Philippians, For to me, to to die is what? Gain. If I die because of Christ, I win. Death becomes a doorway for me into paradise. And if I live, I win. It's more fruitful labor for the Lord. Either way, whatever happens, as this series is so appropriately named, whatever happens, we win because Christ has defeated death for us. We know from the book of Philippians, just the book of Philippians, that in the end, no matter what happens... 
Every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus wins. They'll declare that He's the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. We know just from the book of Philippians, from chapter 3, that God in His holy courtroom accounts us as perfectly righteous in His sight, not because we have anything good to offer Him, but solely on the basis of our faith in Christ. And that when we believe in Christ, what happens? The perfect righteousness of God comes down from heaven, the righteousness of Christ, and is put to our account. And we are declared to be righteous. And so knowing all of this, just from the book of Philippians, but if you went outside of that, I mean just 10,000 glorious graces in our Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing all of that, who God is and who Jesus is and what He's done and how wicked we are in our sins, and knowing all of this, you know what we so often do? You know what I so often do? I fixate on the temporary, temporal, trivial, small things in my life, and I become like Eeyore. And I say this to my shame. God has done all of this, this is who He is, and yet I'm going to fixate on this one relationship, or this sum of money, or this accomplishment that I can't get, Every idol known to man, sex, power, influence, accolades, that one thing that just isn't right in my book, and I'll fixate on that, and I'll have the gall to complain and disobey God's clear command to me in the Scriptures that I rejoice in Him always. Are you like that? I do that all the time. And I'll tell you what, preparing this sermon was the most convicting and yet wonderful thing to me. Because God had to come to me and say, Justin, you know what? Every time you're unhappy, it's some little thing. You aren't rejoicing in me. Your greatest desire, your greatest delight Your greatest joy isn't in me, and when it's not in me, you're miserable, Justin. And this is not a new problem. This problem is as old as the Garden of Eden, isn't it? You remember Adam and Eve? They had everything, perfect communion with their Creator. It was what they were made for. They had everything. Ten million yeses in the Garden of Eden. Can I do this? Yes. Can I do this? Yes. Can I do this? Yes. Can I eat this fruit? Yes. 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 And you know what they told God? They rebelled against His command. And they said, you know what, God? We're not going to be happy unless we can have the one thing that you told us we couldn't have. And they did that just like we do that. Just like I do that. You remember the people of Israel? They come out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, signs and wonders. You remember in the Pentateuch, back in the Pentateuch, you remember Numbers and Deuteronomy, 
What was the one thing that the people of Israel did that angered God more than anything and angered Moses more than anything? Do you remember what it was? It wasn't like God came down to Moses and said, Moses, the murder rate in Israel, too high. I'm really angry about this. And God didn't come down to Moses and say, Moses, the burglary rate in Israel. These Israelites, they're running around, sneaking into each other's tents at night, stealing stuff. This is a problem. I'm angry about it, Moses. Do you remember what it was? What was the one thing that angered God the most and angered His servant Moses the most? It was complaining and grumbling against the God who had given them everything. They watched the waters of the Red Sea destroy their arch enemy who had ruled over them with oppressive slavery. And they get out in the wilderness and right away, complaining, what does God do? Streams of living water in the wilderness. And you'd think they could delight in that. No. What are we going to do now? Can we go back to Egypt? This is terrible. God provided everything for them. A glorious banquet of grace to them. Defeated their enemies. Provided food. Provided clothing. Provided shelter. Provided financially riches. They plundered the Egyptians when they came out of there. And all they could ever manage to do was find something wrong. You see, they were Eeyore Christians to my shame, so often like I am. And yet this whole time, the whole purpose for our existence is here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. We were made to delight, to enjoy the God who made us, who longs for fellowship with us. Some old Presbyterian brothers in Christ, a couple hundred years ago in England, they wrote a statement of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. They got together and they said, let's study the Bible. And these these were some super scholars real well. And then let's write a statement of faith and we'll do it by subject. So we can say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, about the last things, about the church. It's a wonderful Protestant confession. And attendant to this confession are catechisms. And all catechisms are, are a tool for teaching a new convert or teaching your kids all the glorious truths contained in the Word of God. I want to read to you one question. It's very short and one answer from the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism. It happens to be the very first question. Listen to the question. Question one, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the whole purpose of humanity on this earth? And you read that and you go, whoa, Westminster Confession, guys, slow down. Start me off with a, you know, an easy pitch or something. 
I mean, these guys jumped right in, don't they? What is the whole purpose for humanity? I don't think these guys were probably too into things like icebreaker games. What do you think? I mean, when these guys got down to business, they got down to business. So here's question one. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is so short, and yet it is so full of biblical truth. Ready? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think most of us, we remember the glorify God part. We know that we're saved, that we're created for the glory of the sovereign living God. But do you realize we were created to rejoice in Him? We're actually supposed to enjoy this. It's supposed to be our greatest delight. The greatest one. C.S. Lewis illustrated our refusal to enjoy God, to delight in Him so well. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's me a lot of times. Is it you? I mean, we will sit in the mud puddle. I will sit in the mud puddle of my own sin, holding two handfuls of sludge, whatever the idol of the day happens to be, this thing, whether it's a relationship, a person, Money, sex, power, acclamation, job, health, whatever it is, I will sit in the mud puddle and hold two hands full of filthy sludge, just like Lewis said, and I'll say, well, I don't want to go to your party, God. And in the meantime, God has a glorious banquet of grace available It's already mine in Christ Jesus. God's throwing a beach party two yards away. Body surfing, sandcastles, sunsets, ice cream. Delights infinite beyond imagination that He gives to us in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll sit in a mud puddle and say, No, God, this thing is the thing I'm going to delight in. This is for me. In the meantime, from the beginning of the text of Scripture to the end, 
God is constantly commanding us for our own good, delight in me. I'm your portion. Rejoice in me. And yet so often I refuse. Christ taught us about the spirit of rejoicing. He taught about it a lot, but he taught about it by way of one of my favorite parables. Quickly, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And if this isn't the shortest parable in your Bible, then it is absolutely a close second. The whole parable is one verse. And I think it's, it's probably my favorite parable in the whole New Testament. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Our Lord tells a very simple parable. The kingdom of, of, of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. It's a great parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man, for whatever reason, he stumbles across some treasure in a field. He sees that it is of so much value and worth to him It far surpasses anything he's ever found. He runs back. Well, first he covers it up. He doesn't want anyone else to see it. It's so precious to him. He runs back to town and he sells everything. And we can modernize this. He sells the house and the cars, the extra clothes. He cashes in the 401k, everything. Just give me the cash. And he runs back. Is the field still for sale? Is it still for sale? Yes. Oh, wonderful. I'll buy the field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the treasure is Christ himself. And all of the glorious grace that we find in him alone. You know, in a dark and miserable world, And people fake, you know, I mean, we're all good at faking this. People fake happy, they they fake delight. In a dark and miserable world, this should be one of the great marks of the church. And let's not just say the church, because that's just too generic. This should be one of the great marks of FAC. When the people in your worlds, in your life, see you, they should see a couple things. First, they should see that you're a lot like them because they look at your life and they see that, well, he has problems, he has dysfunctional relationships, he has financial issues from time to time, the kids don't always behave. He struggles with everything I struggle with. He struggles with death. His family members die, just like mine do, with sickness and disease and suffering and hardship. He's living in the real world. And then they should see a stark difference. And here's the stark difference. They should see that we're like them, and then they should go, well, there's that guy from FAC. How in the world can he be so happy in the midst of all of that? How does he have joy? How does she have joy in the middle of real life, which is so oftentimes painful 
and irritating and stressful. What is it about those Christians? We should be delighting in the Lord. Do you rejoice in God above all else? And that is a convicting question, I think, if you answer it honestly. And it's convicting to me, but God is gracious. We'll get back to that in one second. Paul goes on, verse 5, Let your gentleness be evident to all. I think what Paul is saying is, is that in the midst of your joy, in the midst of the joy that's to be in the church, he says, let your gentleness, let your not insisting on your own way, let this kind gentleness that exists between you as brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, let it be evident to all. The outside world should see this. He says, the Lord is near. Four words, very important in this text. The Lord is near. You should rejoice in God. You should be gentle. The Lord is near. And indeed, He is near, isn't He? I mean, He's near this morning. Jesus Christ is present by His Holy Spirit. And in one sense, He couldn't really get any closer. I mean, if you've trusted in Christ, He's living on the inside. He couldn't get any closer. And in another sense, He's near... Jesus is coming back any second. And I think Paul is probably emphasizing the second option. Jesus can get back at any second. The church has been so blessed throughout 2,000 years of history, every generation of the church has thought, I think Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. And I think that the Lord intended it to be that way. Remember what Jesus said? He said, watch and pray because you don't know when I'm coming back. Just watch and pray and be diligent and stay up all night. Remember, he says, my second coming is like a burglar that breaks into your house. So stay up and watch and pray. And he's near. And when he comes, everything we've done for him which in the whole scheme of everything he's done for us is pretty insignificant. But everything he promised, all the glorious riches of grace in him, will instantly, our faith will instantly, it will instantly be proved right when Jesus comes. I wish he would come this afternoon. He could come at any moment. Now, God tells us that we're to act this way and we're to rejoice in Him. And some of you are hearing this this morning and you're going, Justin, I hear what you're saying and I know that I don't have enough of the joy of the Lord in my heart, in my life, on a day-to-day basis. But you don't know what I'm in the middle of. And some of you this morning are in bad places, dysfunctional relationships, divorces, marriage stuff, problems with kids, money problems, health problems, brokenness, hurting, pain. That's part of this fallen world, isn't it? 
And our God is so gracious to us because He doesn't come to us this morning and say, okay, Christians, better get real joyful. I'm commanding it. And then say, well, bye-bye, poof, and He's gone. Our God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, He, more than anyone, knows suffering and pain and loss and death and stress and anxiety. He knows that life is real, that it hurts. And our God is gracious to us in the Scriptures. This is the next thing He writes. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. That is really an easy phrase in the English language to read, and it is really, really hard to take it to heart. Do not be anxious about most of the stuff in your life. doesn't say that. It says, don't be anxious about anything. Boy, do I fail at that. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What is the answer to real life? Whatever happens, pray. Mark talked about it this morning before the the sermon started. What are you to do? God says you're to pray to me. I care. He says, list them out. What's bothering you? And he's careful and he says, do it with thanksgiving. He says, don't do it as a complainer. Don't do it and forget that the gospel's real. The gospel's real. You should be thankful no matter what happens. He says, but I realize you have hard, difficult, painful stuff going on. So what are you supposed to do? You're to give him your requests, your petitions. You're to tell him, this is hurting me. You're to list them out before him. God is gracious. He asks us to do this. And what does he give us? The next verse, verse 7. If you do this, if you present your petitions and your requests, thankfully to God, what does he do? It's simple. He gives you everything on your list. Right? Just list them out. I'm going to... No, he doesn't do that. God is not cosmic Santa Claus. You know, write them all down and give them to me and I'll go flying off into heaven scurrying around. Oh, i got to get Justin. Everything on his list. God may not give you anything on your list. He may give you everything. He'll give you everything on your list if you pray in accordance with His will. But watch out, because that's a dangerous prayer. He might not give you everything on your list, but this is what He'll give you. Listen. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds In Christ Jesus. You might not get the whole list, but He'll give you a peace the likes of which you have never before experienced and you can't even explain it. 
It defies even understanding. And you know, God doesn't give us everything on our list because He loves us. If you're honest, and I'll be honest with you, half of the things on my prayer list are usually the wrong things. They're not what I need. I mean, if you're asking God for more idols to chase around, give me this person, give me this relationship, give me this much money, give me this, give me this, give me this. If if your Heavenly Father really cares about you, you think He's going to do that? He knows that just leads to more misery. But He'll give you the best thing He can give you, and it's this. He'll give you a peace, the likes of which... You can't even understand it's so good. And I think that this is applicable as the, as the outside world looks at the church, too. I think that Paul intends, probably here, that it's he'll give you, the church, so much peace between each other that the outside world will not even be able to comprehend or understand what's going on in here. How do those people who suffer the same way I do, how do they gently, peaceably get along like that? It's amazing. You know, I think that a lot of times we mistake heaven for the time or the place where we finally get everything on our list. You ever think that way? I have. Well, I didn't get it here, but man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get that car, and I'm going to get a mansion of gold, and I'm going to get, I'm going to get all the stuff I never got. And that is not what heaven is. You know what heaven is? Heaven is verse number four. Heaven is we get to delight in our God, unfettered, unhindered by sin and its consequences. We get to delight in God for all eternity. Just being in His presence will be our greatest joy. What about you? I've already told you, I mean, I'm preaching this more to me than anyone I know. How are you doing with this? God commands you to rejoice in Him Highest and utmost, do you do it? Remember, it's for your own good.